Topic AI Revolution of Human Capital Edition Individual Author Andrew Liueda Hi, my name is Andrew and I want to share with you in the next one hour is to talk about the AI revolution of human capital. This talk is for you as individual. I will answer the questions in this talk. What are the trends? What could be the possible doomsday scenarios? Does AI actually replace people? What is the ideal world? Why do we need to emphasize about the black box approach and the white box approach in applying AI to human capital? And what can you do as individuals to support the community and the ecosystem? Okay, now let's talk about the trends. We will be superhumans in the next 5 to 10 years when AI empowers us to do far more greater things than we can do all the same thing all by our own capabilities. We can achieve a lot of intellectual horsepower by working with them. One way to think about AI is that AI is a general purpose technology or GPT in short. With reference to Bress Nerham and Wright Thunberg, in 1995, in the Journal of Econometrics, they wrote a paper called The Engines of Growth, and they mentioned about the impact of GPT. These technologies serve to create a leap or paradigm shift in the way human beings or society will operate and behave. Like any GPT, there will be this shift and transition. During this shift and transition, jobs will be lost and displaced. Tasks in the jobs will be automated. At the same time, new jobs will be created. The ability to deploy the technology is often limited by how fast the worker can be trained for it. Let me show you a picture of what I mean. There are two circles in the picture. The gray circles represent the existing skill sets of the worker, while the red circles represent the new skill set. There is interdependence of AI adoption and the labor market condition. In a market that doesn't have a new technology coming in, you, the worker, know that your existing skill set and your required skill sets are pretty much the same. So the gap is very small or no gap at all. In other words, the gray circle superimposed itself on the red circle. However, when you have new technology coming into the market, you will notice that there is a need to require the new skill sets to operate the technology. The difference between the new skill sets and the old skill sets reveals the visible gap between them. And so, you see that the overlap between the current skill sets and the new skill sets starts to widen. This is because we start to see that some workers become early adopters of the new technology and supplies these new skills in the market. That's when the technology evolves very fast to the point that the new skill sets almost does not overlap with the existing skill sets. As such, you will see that the red circle is moving to the right as more and more workers learn the new skills and more and more companies adopt the new technology. The intercept between the gray circle and the red circles become smaller and smaller over time. And over time, there will be an increasing need for reskilling. And if the average worker does not become an early technology adopter, he will not be able to keep up in learning the technology. As these new technologies keeps on adding more and more features, that worker will start to realize that the learning curve for these new technologies becomes steeper and steeper over time. That worker will find his or her employability falls over time. Yet, why are we seeing a phenomenon that companies are reluctant to hire talents with emerging skills and even more reluctant to send talents for training? Why are we also seeing another phenomenon that individuals are skeptic about investing their time and resources to acquire new skills? This is the reskilling paradox. Before I explain the reskilling paradox, let me explain what is reskilling. Reskilling is often a time when the individuals need to learn new skills and see that their existing skills get obsolete over time. For instance, I will need to go and learn a new set of new subjects. These subjects allow me to obtain the new knowledge and then I need to practice the new knowledge and to develop the new skills. Thereafter, I will only then be able to offer the new skills to the market. The first paradox of reskilling is that you can make more money using your current skills as compared to using your new skill when you expect to make more money on your new skills. This is because you are slower at applying your new skills to work relative to your current skills. Now, 
you learn the new skills you are applying that new skills what if you are applying that new skills at a rate that is far slower than the skill utilization rate of your existing skills to do the job in other words the reskilling utilization rate is slower than the old skill utilization rate what do i mean let me give you an example for instance let's say i go and get a job at a cafe the old skill set is about taking orders and collecting cash just using pen and paper i can serve 50 customers using that old skill set now suppose my boss in the cafe asked me to use an ipad or a tablet to take order and to administer the credit card payment using the tablet i will need to learn to use the tablet and to learn to use the software in the tablet suppose i spent 40 hours to learn to use the tablet and the application in the tablet that is the time cost of reskilling. And then I apply these new skills to serve the customer. Now let's suppose that if I'm not tech savvy like a millennium, I can only serve 25 customers using the iPad and the application in the iPad to collect payment and take orders. So now, when you think about using my old skill set to serve 50 customers and using my new skill set to serve 25 customers, that means I serve 25 less customers using the new skill sets relative to the old one. 25 customers can be a big financial loss to my boss and my boss would be reluctant to send me for more future training. This is because he realized that he's making a loss by sending me for training. This is the reskilling paradox. So what is the market concerned about? That is, the reskilling utilization rate is slower than the old skill utilization rate to the point that no companies wants to pay for training. If an AI accelerates this paradox, then all of the companies and business owners are concerned about the return of investment or ROI of investing in training. So what about a worker? Would the worker pay for his own training or invest in his own training? If you realize that his new skill utilization rate is slower than his old skill utilization rate, then he'll be smart to know that any future employee will notice that difference. That worker can predict that his future employee, upon noticing that difference, can decide to either cut his pay or give him less working hours. In this scenario, the worker will not invest in training, no matter how many grants are offered to him how many encouragement is given to him, and how frequent the media is publishing the benefits of training to him. This is an investment decision for the individual. He begins to understand the second paradox of reskilling. Now let's look at the second paradox of reskilling. You can make more money by focusing on learning less sets of skills as compared to focusing on many sets of skills. This is what we call the learn less make more dilemma here's the side note if the first paradox and the second paradox occur at the same time then the worker uh, will tell that the company to say the company will hire more experienced hire will do more outsourcing to the marketplace instead of hiring a full-time worker when the company seeks a gigster or a freelancers or an independent contractor they will try to optimize this arrangement as much as possible this is especially when there are no legal compliance to offer benefits, to offer insurance, or to offer any forms of protection to the worker. Okay, let's get back to talk about the learn less, make more dilemma. As you learn new skills, some of your old skills and your current skills gets obsolete. According to research, our memory operates on a use it or lose it basis. Let me give you an example. There's WhatsApp, there's Slack chat, there's WeChat, there's HipChat, and maybe another 10 more chat application out there. If you use one of these applications very frequently, then you'll be very good at using that specific app. There's no doubt about it, and you will obtain productivity from that frequent use of that specific application. If you use many apps that does the same function, it is not possible to use them on the same intensity and frequency as you will spend that total amount of time using one app. As such, you might not be good at using any apps at all. It's an honest reality check. There will be memory loss or memory decline in those apps because you don't use them very frequently over time. 
And besides, some of these apps keep adding new features and becomes very hard to learn so many apps over time. And these loss of skills or declines of skills happen because of such memory loss or decline. This is known as de-skilling. When reskilling is slower than de-skilling, then the companies will question the investment of sending this worker for training. In other words, if your ability to learn and apply the new technique is slower than your inability to repeat the same task on the same technology, then the company will question the investment for sending this worker for training. This becomes difficult for the worker. He or she has family commitments like taking care for the family, taking care for the elders. The worker will take a long time to go for training and find a new job. He figures that he will prefer to profit from the short term by selling his current skill as a gigster or freelancer. When the worker enters into such an arrangement, they will involuntarily be less prepared for financial planning or uncertainties like accidents, health hiccups. He begins to realize that he can no longer get jobs given his current skills get obsolete. This is why individuals like Elon Musk advocates universal basic income. This is because when the technology revolution is so fast that when you put the context of reskilling and deskilling in dynamics, people experience the emotions of pain and uncertainty. And not everyone has sufficient income to trade their existing work time for the time to study and to gain mastery. This is especially when they acknowledge their slow reskilling utilization rate of these new skills. So over time, there can be a situation in which that the hatred for technology swells and we can experience a Luddite revolution. The Luddites were a group of English textile workers and weavers in the 19th centuries who destroyed weaving machines as a form of protest. The group was protesting the use of machinery in a fraudulent and deceitful manner to get around the standard labor practices. Luddites feared that the time spent learning the skills of their craft would go to waste as machines would replace their role in the industry. It's important to note that AI can exacerbate the reskilling and de-skilling paradox and that the inability to manage the societal acceptance of AI and the societal management of the individual reskilling and de-skilling transition can create social instability. It's important to know the truth that a lot of government, a lot of political leaders and politicians have to recognize. Let's go back to another trend. As automation accelerates the recompositions of jobs, jobs will become gigs. People who are good at a specific skill wouldn't want to stay in a full-time job if companies just gonna keep shoving a lot of apps to their employees. Suppose the employee is very good at using a specific software to develop a website. There are dozens of similar softwares doing the same task. The employee will question, why should I go and learn it? I'm asking this question because I feel overwhelmed. Learning these softwares and using them have not been allowing me to gain any substantial productivity or substantial income. I might as well freelance. I might as well outsource my availability in the marketplace for that deployment of that specific software. This is where the danger lies. You can see the trends that individuals are beginning to say. Forget about taking a full-time job. I just want to do a gig of freelance. I have less scope of work given I'm productive on using that specific software. I just need to keep making more of the same assignments or gigs. If I'm good at three to four skill sets to make some trades as a gigster or freelancer, then I will not prefer to take up about 10 to 20 more skill sets in a corporate job. I might as well take more income in the short term as much as I can. This is because I feel that corporate jobs are no longer secure. Eventually, you will notice that the only full-time job holders will be the entrepreneurs, the inventors, the investors, and complex gigs jugglers. Based on my personal experience, any of the above mentioned occupation holder will handle at least about 100 tasks a day. And the winners will be gigs capitalizers. They'll be good at asking for gigs or using gigs. And as such, we will see today's jobs becoming a composition of tomorrow's gigs. 
We'll see that jobs gets recomposed every six months with new tasks or new elements that cannot be automated. When there is a new technology transformation, companies will reorganize themselves, companies will hire and fire people, they will typically fire people who are resistant to change, and they will hire new people. That dynamics of change will cause morale disruption and unhappiness, and that's how modern and agile enterprise will work. You might be thinking, why don't companies cope with change by retraining workers instead of resorting to hiring and firing people? This is the answer. Suppose they retrain the individual and that individuals might not be able to handle the new task that is demanded by the market. You know, and so what do you think? As a result, that worker can drag the performance of the company and that company has to go into firing people again. And because of that, the individual will become smart to realize that, hey, I join any company and get fired every two years. This is because of the reorganizations that the company needs to keep up or mistakes that the company leaders make. If that's the case, then I might be better off becoming a gigster or a freelancer. Therefore, they enter into the marketplace to target different businesses and to offer their specialized skills. On the same cycle, the enterprise thinks, hey, maybe we should go to the marketplace and hire the freelancers or gigsters. Not because we want to pay them less, but because we are able to get the required skills fast enough to meet dynamic changes in the market. And so over time, we see the following happens. The enterprise becomes leaner and leaner and the individual jobs becomes more and more transient and the transient marketplace becomes bigger and bigger. And this cycle will feed itself and perpetuates itself. Eventually, we might see that a job gets recomposed every six months with new elements that cannot be automated. We will realize that the stability of the job is no longer about staying in a job for 10 years. At the same time, at the current time, the political leaders forecast that the individual will stay on the job for about two years. Maybe because this cycle, we will foresee that in the next five to ten years, a stable job only lasts six months to a year. The tenure of a rank and file job or corporate job will eventually approximate to the tenure of a gig or an assignment taken by a freelancer or a gigster. I term this the transient workforce cycle. And so you think about it. As the individual, the freelancers or gigsters are a full-time employee, you will be thinking like this. How do I take a calculated risk in my next gig or job? So long I can take calculated risk, I'm able to take care of myself. This is because every gig or job decision is an investment to decide my future lifetime income. Taking calculated risk means that I understand the concept of high risk, high return. In other words, I, the individuals, should expect a high return from a high risk job. This is because the market is directly transferring part of the company's risk to the workers. This is very different in the old days when you follow a sequential life cycle of an adult. Let me explain a little bit more. About 10 to 20 years ago, you will follow a specific path of living. You'll take on formal education for 15 to 20 years. It means completing your primary school, your secondary school, your college, and maybe your university. After completing your formal education, you take a good corporate job and you wriggle your way to be at the top of the corporate ladder. Out of that, you earn your income as you contribute to society. And then you save enough to retire. However, this sequential life cycle of an adult has changed. So what has changed? How has the life cycle of an adult changes over time? Recalling that as the enterprise gets leaner and leaner, they get more nimble at outsourcing their jobs to independent contractors and to gigsters. The full-time corporate talent will enter the transient workforce cycle and becomes gigsters over time. These gigsters become very specialized at specific skills. They can be remote coders, content writers, data scientists, and so on. Over time, the market plays arrangement between the gigsters and the enterprises reach a dynamic equilibrium. As such, the new life cycle will no longer be sequential for the adult. 
You recall that your current skill set originates from your past formal education that gets obsolete over time. Instead of making an income via utilizing your current skill set, you have to reskill to be able to keep up with the market as your income declines over time. This is because you are selling your old skills as a gigster and your old skills declines in value over time. And because you are a gigster, your income is no longer staggered. In other words, you don't get paid when you're sick or when you cannot turn up for work. Your income is constantly dependent on your ability to utilize your skills in real time. Maybe in the past, you hold a corporate job and you only have to trade your time between work and non-work commitments. In the past, the company will pay for your training and pay your salary when you go for training. Now, you will have to learn to optimize your time between completing delivery orders, reskilling, and managing other non-work commitments. The life path of an individual's move from being a sequential one to a concurrent one. When that happens, then the notion of security is perhaps all about developing more capabilities and translating that opportunity into income using technology. Income security will mean a passive streams of gigs and that retirement does not mean that you stop working. It means taking less gigs over time. You still have to work. You have to be so good at utilizing your skill set that you can command a premium on that skill set. By doing so, you don't have to worry about it. And so you think about it, you will realize that the individual is joining a new form of workforce called the transient workforce. This is also known as the Uberizations of jobs. By 2020, companies will no longer be just hiring only full-time employees, but a mixture of contingent workers. These contingent workers can be temporary employees, part-timers, casual workers, seasoned workers, highly skilled remote workers, experts, and independent contractors. As such, the modern agile companies will adapt to this transient workforce to enable themselves to be constantly innovative and relevant to the dynamic market. As a consequence of that, these companies can therefore manage their human resources to be cost-effective, efficient, and innovative as possible. This is what we call strategic flexible workforce management, and that will become an imperative for agile companies. So you think about it. As companies adopt a transient workforce management approach and contingent workers have to manage their concurrent life cycles, the need for universal benefit income becomes visible. So why do we eventually need universal benefit income? This is because the human minds demand connective slack to learn and to be innovative or to be creative. You need connective slack whether you are in a corporate figuring out what jobs to buy or whether you are a gigster trading your skills for income. You need the mental space and time to be able to think freely and easily. Only when you can think freely and easily, that's where the aha moments that can ignite the creativity and innovativeness in you, you also learn better over time. If you don't have mental space to think about the things in your head, your mind will ramble like a monkey and wonder whether you can pay for your bills for tomorrow, whether you can support your family. When you have universal income, you will be thinking like this. I don't have to worry about my income and I have time and effort to take risks. I have more time to learn. I can take more calculated bets to gain social mobility. Let me give you an example. Suppose you have 10 gigs and the truth is that you can please everybody sometime. You can please somebody every time, but you cannot please everybody all the time. And because you're doing 10 jobs or more, the likelihood you will make mistakes increases over increasing number of jobs you take in a short period of time. This is even if you work with robots or AI application, you will make mistakes. Out of the 10 jobs, you will probably do well in 7 jobs, and that's pretty good. If each job are equally paid, chances are you can still make a decent expected living. This is a form of stability for you in that case. 
then you will have enough time to take that risk. Only when you can afford to take risks, you can make bigger bets. You can afford to take on skills that are more complex because you can have the potential upside to double or triple your income. You don't have to worry and therefore you can afford to learn something new. Now let's look at, at another scenario. You don't do well in the three jobs out of the 10 jobs that you do in one year. And that's three, three jobs derives 70% of your income. You know, let me repeat again. That three jobs derives 70% of your income. Now you can expect a sharp reduction to your income to the point that you have to, oh my God, constantly worry about your work, your family, and your future. This constant worry can lead to depression or can lead to further cognitive decline or mistake. That further exacerbates a vicious cycle that can send you down a downward spiral in your income and land you into an urban poverty status. That's why we need universal income to enable the individual to transit through tough times, especially when one starts to experience a sudden shock in one's economic status. Having universal income at the back of the individual's mind that same individual who is in the same situation in this first scenario can take bigger bets in taking up more complex skills or take bigger bets to take on more difficult assignments. When each individual feels assured in the society, it enables inclusiveness and promotes collaboration. There is a study done by Dan Arely, one of the famous behavioral economists. When human beings think that life is not a zero-sum game, they will collaborate. They will come together and they will work together and that collaborations results in achieving an outcome that is far greater than oneself. This is very important. The society will be better off with big wins. This is the reason why we are seeing bigger and bigger amount of philanthropy dollars at work. The rich people realize that even though their hard work is a contributing factor to their prosperity, there are many other contributing factors at play. You know, these contributing factors can be as follows. The policeman is doing their job to make sure everything is safe, be it cybercrime or social crime. The teacher is trying to make sure that the next generations of workers or adults have the relevant skill set. Your friends and family are offering moral support. And because of that, the rich man says, Thanks to the society, I managed to make it big, and I'm so grateful that I want to share my prosperity with everyone, including the marginal ones. And this is the trend that we are seeing right now. Rich people are giving back to society because they feel grateful about it. If the winners doesn't give back to society in a capitalistic world, then the society will feel that it's playing a zero-sum game. No one wants a zero-sum game. In the same sense, when you have universal benefit income and when everyone feels inclusive, it becomes natural that work becomes a calling or a vocation. Giving becomes a blessing. When you feel assured and feels happy, your needs will rise along the masculine hierarchy of needs. You will want to actualize your full potential as your basic needs of food, shelter, and transport are met. You will start to ponder whether the work you do have meaning. Does it have meaning? Does it have impact? It's very often the desire to realize one's meaning of life and the desire for one to achieve the impact that drives the individual to take calculated risks. These desires also enable the individual to take the plunge to go through the roller coaster of life. Like having a vaccine injection, universal income can drive individuals to be adventurous and to come out even more stronger out of the risky decisions he or she makes. And therefore, you feel that you want to contribute, you want to win, and you want to give back. Working in that sense becomes fulfilling. It becomes your passion. And when you make money by doing what you love to do, you don't feel that it is a job. You don't feel that it is a chore or a job. That's why most people call household chores because most people don't like to do it. And when you love doing something, it's no longer considered a chore, but a leisure. You make leisure your job. And that's the best thing in the world. And therefore, when you have money and you work long hours to satisfy 
your self-actualization, you will not think about spending. By the time you have excess wealth, you will think about giving. And when you give, you consider giving a blessing. And so work becomes a form of self-dignification. It gives you a sense of dignity and a sense of pride instead of survival. At the same time, we see that there are different developed countries trying to experiment on setting up different forms of universal basic income. As the society provides basic income to everyone, the individual can receive this help. That help enables him or her to have some connective slack and to have also a sense of security. As a result, everyone will become more collaborative. Along the same line, when a country is in short of labor supply or talent supply, that country starts to calibrate pro-migrant schemes. Calibrating these schemes with universal income might enable the local to feel that, hey, it's okay, we need more people to come and contribute. These migrants can pay a fair additional tax to allow us to be able to come back to contribute to the society as we learn from them. We can also gain a fair share of their contribution to the new market. This is because we are now supporting each other. In recent times, we are seeing the rise of xenophobia or the rise of anti-migration. These mentions backdrops can be a political cost to bring in migrants. As such, migrant schemes with universal income can potentially reduce the survival anxiety of the locals. This is echoed by Jeff Sachs, a famous economist that acknowledged the impact of AI and automation on job displacement and welcomed universal income along with Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla Model Affirmation. Elon Musk mentioned that it will essentially be necessarily to introduce universal income as the era of singularity is coming. The time will come when AI and automation starts to displace jobs faster than enabling jobs placement for those being displaced. Now, the counter-argument to giving universal income is that it might not be sustainable. So how sustainable can it be? The sustainability is often a calibrating, balancing act of figuring out the optimum number of migrants with emerging skills, the optimum amount of universal income to the locals, and the optimum amount of tax from companies. If companies take big bets by becoming leaner and generating more profits and more revenue per in-house employee, then taxing on these revenues will be able to benefit the society. As a consequence of that, the society creates a sense of assurance for individuals to learn and to try new technological tools and businesses. The other concern about universal income is about balancing multi-generational issues. Suppose the government starts to give universal income. It is very likely to come from the budget instead of placing a bumpy tax claims on companies or foreigners. In order to think about the multi-generational issue, we need to think about the work belief and patterns of the future generations. The youngest generations in the current workforce is the millennium. The millennium in the current workforce are more keen to work for experiences. They will be thinking along this line. If I take a gig or a part-time job, I learn a new experience. I'm learning something new. I can give back and I can share, especially using modern social media channels like Instagram, WeChat, Snapchat, and so on. The notion of sharing and giving back without feeling a lot of effort in completing the jobs make them feel cool and happy about it. In the digital world, they can be clueless given that they have so many choices. They want to know what they are good at and what they can contribute. This fuels their desire for jobs with a lot of exposure. This can also mean that they want to move to as many sectors as possible, to try as many job functions as much as possible, and to go to as many countries as much as possible. They want to deepen their transferable skills. 
in order to enable them to have more transferable skills, they will rather work in a company that enable them to share their portfolio or their working lives. And as such, companies like security companies or government with classified information might not be able to allow millennials to share their work information. So these companies can expect to pay a higher salary premium relative to companies that enable that type of sharing. As such, restricted companies can expect to pay double or triple to hire a millennium and companies can possibly resort to outsourcing to contractors, independent contractors will have to think about these jobs on a very selective basis. Let's talk about the future generations of worker. Most often, these skills are not traditionally captured in the resume. As such, these workers want to gain more visibility on the digital realm. You know, and they will be thinking along the line of the more visible the new age worker can showcase the work, the higher the personal perceived brand value. And one interesting observation that we are going to talk about is as follows. The other interesting observation about the younger generations of workers is that they will work for a purpose. This means that they will get no pay or very little pay if they can tell people that, hey, I do XYZ and it helps 10,000 people. It can help 100,000 people. They think that their work has a greater impact. In order for that to happen, they will be thinking about what kind of work we should do to generate impact. Universal income can generate more volunteerism because more millenniums are willing to volunteer given that they can generate impact without worrying about their basic needs. The above scenario is perhaps one of the merits for universal income because it encourages labor participation in social sectors which often experience a labor crunch. This is especially where labor markets pose a high employment cost or are located in countries or cities with high cost of living. Some of these social sectors have jobs that are hard to do and hard to attract people to do. As such, universal income can allow some volunteers to take on these hard jobs you know, over time and that these volunteers can trade their working time to volunteer. When this happens, the society promotes social cohesion and social collaboration. What could be the worst case scenario if we are not seeing political leaders and companies moving forward to capitalize on this trend or adapt to this trend? We might foresee a possible Luddite revolution. Let's look at the other extreme scenario of using AI. We have autonomous vehicles, it's great to have them in countries with a severe shortage of manpower. What if the dominant composition of the local workforce in that society are taxi drivers? This creates a huge unemployment in that society. What can these taxi drivers do to transit? The problem becomes acute, especially when the taxi drivers will take a longer time to find other jobs that requires other types of intelligence. Why is that so? Their key skills originates from their spatial or spatial intelligence. Spatial intelligence is a form of human intelligence to manipulate moving objects in the 3D world. If autonomous car can replace taxi drivers, there are other autonomous vehicles that can replace other drivers. Can the displaced taxi drivers drive a van? Yes, driving the van is similar to driving the car because both use spatial intelligence, but they will not most likely get to drive the van because autonomous van is also coming. So if most of the transport companies are moving to adopt autonomous vehicle, then there will not be any jobs or few jobs that require spatial intelligence anymore. If that's true, then the taxi drivers experience rapid de-skilling. Then they need to add new skills to their human capital. Then the question is, how long does it take for the taxi drivers to learn a new skill that requires other types of intelligence other than their spatial intelligence? Other skills like creative thinking, digital marketing or programming can take a long time for the displaced taxi drivers to learn because these new skills uses other types of innate intelligence. It is like asking a swimmer to become a 100 meter sprinter when swimming is no longer 
an accepted sport in the Olympic. And so when that happens, you might see a Luddite revolution in that society. And that's what Jeffrey Sachs says. Yes, AI automate tasks, uh, but also create a lot of jobs. A lot of mini tasks will be displaced. And therefore, there needs to be reskilling. If these taxi drivers have encountered the reskilling, deskilling paradox, then they not only cannot find a job, they will feel frustrated and possibly behave like the Luddites. This is because of the sharp fall in their income and the sharp rise in their learning curve to pick up another skill. This can propel a human being to behave irrationally or angrily. This is when universal income helps to smooth the transition for this group of people. If political leaders and companies ignore this trend, they will face dangerous and volatile consequences. Now let's look at another trend. There is a paradigm shift in which that the existing tools starts to lose its relevance relative to emerging tools. What do I mean? Let me give you an example. Let's look at the job of a marketer. In the old days, a marketer has to decide on media buying from traditional publication sources. It can be buying ads from TV or buying ads from radio stations or buying billboards or buying flyers or buying the services to enable free sampling. Because of technology, companies are saying, what is the return of investment for the marketing spend? New technology tools like Google search or Facebook campaign start quantifying the marketing spend. And therefore, digital marketing becomes a new scope of existing marketers' job. Here's the question. Can existing marketers be able to transit themselves? These marketers are probably be thinking, how difficult it is to transit. What is the time taken to transit? What is the economic cost for this transit? For example, will I have even less time to take care of my family, to take care of my kids, to be a good son or daughter to my elderly parents? What is the mental or emotional cost of this transit? What is the cost for the government if the locals are not able to transit? A McKinsey research shows that the jobs that can be automated. The study describes the percentage of the tasks that can be automated in the jobs. The degree of automation is increasingly happening across all sorts of jobs over time. If that's the case, what do we need to think about it? So how can we find work for the existing workers? Here is an infographic about the hourly wage effects of automations on the jobs. As you can see, the scatter plot is widely dispersed. So what does that mean? It means that automation happens to all jobs. It also means that there's no linear or unique patterns for us to describe this relationship. Accounting jobs can be automated, sales jobs can be automated, food preparation in a restaurant can also be automated. So any jobs that you can think of with an element of repetitiveness can be automated. Now let's look at another chart. If I have more and more roles in one job, then the probability of my job being fully automated becomes smaller and smaller. In other words, if I have a job consists of a data scientist and a marketer, then I will not be easily replaced by automation. Having said that, <clears throat> nobody wants to have a bigger job scope. No one wants to take on so many tasks. Taking a big job scope or taking a lot of tasks can very easily incur mental fatigue or burnout for you. Without having a sense of awareness, prolonged mental fatigue or burnout can lead to chronic health issues like mental illness or diabetes over time. These are the things that can cost the public a lot of resources to fix it. Perhaps we need to start thinking about these questions. How can we enable our next generations to better prepare for automations across their jobs without worrying about long-term health complications down the road? How can we better prepare the next generations to adapt and to beef up their mental resilience? And so you will feel like this. Wow, it seems so scary to think about it. AI can replace people or potentially increase workload expectation. AI can wreck my health. And so, is this all that scary? So what else that we human can do? Turns out that we still have some itch 
in the market for every human being. Let me share with you an example. A Blu-ray player at this time is almost 90% made by the robot, shipped by robotic arms and delivered by drones. It is currently sold at $47. At the same time, we have this handmade ceramic bowl that is 100% made by an artisan. It is currently sold at $750 in eBay. So you can see that the human authentic experience has a higher value than a 100 robotic solution. As much as a lot of jobs get automated, there are certain things that we human beings make or deliver in the form of services or goods exhibit that human touch and that human touch is highly valued by another human in the marketplace. And that is a great thing. At least we know that human generated value still carry a premium over robotic solution. Here's another example. Okay, you pay 99 cents for an iTunes song or $10 a month on Spotify for a song or Mozart played by a new artist. By the way, that same song can be composed with modern machine learning techniques. Yet, you have to pay $807 for a live concert played by the same artist. The joke here is you probably paid $10 for amusement entry to watch the robot play the exact same song in real time. So clearly, we see that there is a unique value generated between human and human connections, and complex communications becomes increasingly valuable. And this is one of the great things we need to take home. Now the other thing we need to think about AI on human capital is the AI effect on the evolutions of existing jobs. How can we cobot with the robots? How can we cooperate with the robots? For example, we used to see the chef or hawker learning to operate the end-to-end -end kitchen activity chain by himself. There are a lot of tasks go into creating that special dish for the customer. As a chef, you have to source for the material, contact the supplier to make sure that he or she comes on time, check the quality of the materials, prepare the ingredients, chop them, slice them, sort them out, cook them, decor them, prepare them, just so that you can enable this nice dish of chicken rice for the customer. It's 12 tasks just to serve a dish of chicken rice to the customer and collect payment, of course. Now with Robotic Chef, the number of tasks can be automated so that the chef can do much less kitchen grind work and using that extra time to focus on more on creating new recipes. This literally free up the connective thinking of the chef. The chef becomes more creative and more interesting dishes will appear, more new recipes and more new ideas are formed. They are being tested faster until you see these chefs produce the Michelin standard. That's great because the rich people are willing to spend more money on good food and that money will get circulated into the economy. And that's the beauty of AI. Here's another example. The locksmith used to prepare the keys when someone locked himself or herself out of the house. The locksmith has to bring a bunch of keys. Now, as more and more doors get digital locks, the role of the locksmith has evolved into a cybersecurity analyst that protects the security networks of these digital locks. This is how a dying or obsoleting trade gets evolved into a new trade. Here's another example. An accountant that does bookkeeping and now he or she has to evolve to become a forensic programmer. The task of automating the data entry and connective computing, the four financial statements, are now being done by AI. This is seen in the software companies like Zero and Intune. So the accountant has to spend the time generated by AI to focus on thinking about to help the customer to detect fraud or improve business performance. Now the other impact from AI and robotic is increasing the size of workforce for specific jobs. AI and robotics can expand the talent pool for interesting jobs. Here's a cool example. From the old day to the current present, when you hire a police officer, you need to make sure that candidate passed the physical fitness test, and then you deploy the new police officer. Now, with robotic and AI, 
a kid that once lost his leg and arm, can become a robot cop. His dream of becoming a police officer is now possible thanks to modern robotics and AI. This science fiction is becoming a reality with new biohack technology and equipment. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the nature of job. The nature of job will change over time. Any job that's repetitive will be automated by AI. So, what does that mean for you? If you want to survive, you'll have to take more and more different jobs. You have to take on more and more different tasks that is either hard to replicate or that is not repetitive in nature. These jobs typically require a lot of judgment, a lot of creativity, a lot of innovation, and a lot of courage. When you try to do new things, your head or job is on the chopping block. If you don't master your courage and try new things with risky payoff, you are going to be mediocre. Your job will eventually be replaced by AI robotics. This is what we are seeing today. The demand for non-routine connective jobs keeps increasing over time. And at the same time, the routine jobs either get stagnated or are in decline. These are the key trends I want you to think about. It. Now, the next interesting key insights I want to share with you is about process thinking. The ability to apply that into automating your daily tasks. You want to be like a geek. What I mean by that? Initially, you might be doing a task. Let's say you copy and paste in a certain way. You notice that you are copying and pasting on the same thing 10 times a day. It's so easy and yes, it's so repetitive. If you automate that, you can clearly see the long run benefits. And yes, in the beginning, you have to figure out the steps, you have to put them into writing and diagrams, and then you infer the algorithm and logic behind the steps. Then you figure out a tool to automate them. Yes, this takes a considerable amount of time in the short term because of the initial activity that you have to make. Yes, you will also feel the inertia to get started. You might have to use a lot of effort to automate that. However, as the number of repetitive tasks increases, you automate a lot of your tasks and that frees up a lot of your time. You can use the free time to have the connective free space to think, to be mindful, and to learn, and most importantly, to innovate. And by doing so, you can try different gigs. In that way, you are diversifying your career risk and eventually transiting into a multi-stage life and therefore be like a gig. Now you've understood the above trends and their implications. How do you hack your career? How do you hack your job? Let me share with you a classical tip. If you find that your job is very routine, then the first thing you need to do is to network like crazy. That's network, network, and network. Only via networking, you'll get your name out there. You let people know about you and what you can do. Then you receive different offers or gigs. That's when you can take as many gigs as possible. And as soon as you can offer that same routine job to many different customers over time, then you are de-risking your job. In other words, you are diversifying your career risk. Your job that is routine might be automated if you stay in the same company over time. But if you take the same job and offer it to different companies, you might be productive at that one skill and make enough money to de-risk yourself over time. What if your job is complex? If your job is complex, then you need to think about how can you learn faster, better, and more effective. You will also need to think about how do you learn to focus. Because the truth is, when you want to learn a complex issue, you need to take time to experiment and try a lot of things, and that require a lot of focus. So the risk is the value of your job. So if you're unable to master that complex jobs because you are not able to perform that job, therefore, you might lose that job, be it in the corporate environment or the outsourced environment. While the probability of losing this complex job is small, you have a high job value at risk. So what does that mean? For instance, you become the head of innovation. It is a complex job, and few can take up this role because it requires design thinking, 
econometric thinking, ability to communicate, and enable change management across the organization. In a typical job market, the demand for such candidates is more than the existing supply. So, the job fetches a high compensation package. And yet, once the candidate loses his or her job, he or she will lose a big drop in his or her income. And that same person will take a longer time to find a similar job. And that is why even professionals and high achievers should be advocating for universal income. This is because they will need to transit to another job. And very often, it's a long transit in terms of finding another job and adjusting to a sharp reduction in their income. Now, the next interesting concept that I want to share with you is about learning decisions. The decisions to learn is actually as important as investing. The decision to learn is also the same as the decision to invest. If you go to a bank, a financial planner or a relationship manager will ask you about your retirement plan. And it's far more important to think about the following. How do you plan your learning? How to learn? What to learn? From who to learn from? Where to learn? How much time to learn? and how much effort it takes to learn. What can you get from this learning? Can you apply your learning to some practical use or futuristic use? If you cannot learn to increase your potential market opportunity, then you will not have enough money to invest. This is because your potential market opportunity will predict your future lifetime income. If you know that your job is part of a cyclical trend, you can expect your fat paycheck to probably last for 18 months. If you know your fat income is that short, then you know that you need another 6 to 12 months to get a similar complex job. At the same time, you will not be able to invest regularly and have to draw on that saving to tie you to the next station. As such, all the more you need to think about learning to hedge your career options. If someone asks you about retirement, you should tell that guy to think about your learning strategy first and then infer your investment options based on the dynamic state of your learning path and the income implications from that path. You should ask that guy, what can you help me to learn? Can you give me more network? So these are the things I want you to think about it. So what are the skills to learn? Because you can learn 101 skills like AI, deep learning, digital marketing, cyber securities. You can also learn e-commerce. You can also learn video production. There are so many things to learn. But you only have 24 hours a day. It's no difference from what should I invest. There are stocks, bonds, safe deposits, and many asset classes in the world. The reason mania is about Bitcoins and Ethereums on those ICOs. At the same time, there are many different kinds of fund managers with different investment objectives and different investment strategies. If you can think like a fund manager on making a plan to learn and adjusting your learning portfolio, then you will have a better chance of diversifying your reskilling risk and hedging against your de-skilling risk. At the same time, you also need to think about what skills can obsolete faster than other skills in the market. Some skills obsolete faster than you can pick up and gain mastery over it. A classic case is learning to program. In the old days, it's C++ in the 1980s, then it's Java in the 1990s, now it's JavaScript for web applications in the 2010s, and Python for data science applications in 2010s as well. All of these programming language can enable the individuals to have different respective extensions. Yet, not every extensions are the same. Even in JavaScript, there's React JavaScript and there's Angular JavaScript. These JavaScripts are popular for front-end development and now there's no JavaScript on the back end. Once you learn one genre of JavaScript, that genre might obsolete because a new genre of JavaScript might emerge and gain popularity among the developers community. So 
you may be thinking like this. Oh shit, I learned this JavaScript X and it's now obsolete. There are two ways to think about this. What have I learned? Maybe I should be more sensitive to my own capabilities and deploying my time and resources to place my bet in taking this skill over that skill. Which skill can I gain return of investment or ROI now? Because without quick wins, you will not have mental motivation and cognitive capabilities to keep learning and to keep learning very fast. That is very important for you to be aware of. Recalling that I mentioned that we should process our learning decisions like investment decisions. Then you might be wondering, what are the principles of investing that can be applied to learning? Allow me to explain the concept of portfolio selection theory. This is developed by a Nobel Economic Prize winner, Henry Markowitz, in his essay in 1952 on portfolio selection theory. Suppose you have a limited budget. You can select different asset classes to reach your wealth planning objective. So, you will eventually construct a portfolio that will give you an overall risk-adjusted return. The same classic principle states that the higher risk you take in buying that asset, the higher return you should demand from that asset. If you apply the same principles of investing to learning, then it means that you should take calculated risk in learning different courses and measuring the return of investment from your learning like an asset portfolio. In this case, you need to have a strong sense of self-awareness on the skill utilization performance you get from learning the courses. By doing so, you improve your employability, thereby improving your future earnings. This can be applied to everyone, including myself. Now let's talk about a world with AI that empowers human capital. What does the world look like? That vision for us as a society is to eventually unlock human potential using technology. There are existing technology that can enable us to pursue our happiness. This is similar to Hollywood movie title, The Pursuit of Happiness, played by Will Smith. We can eventually choose the type of work we want over time. In 5 to 10 years time, companies will adopt new AI technology to evaluate the return of investment on human capital. The Moneyball movie will no longer be just a Hollywood movie playing out in the sports arena, but across all industry over time. If we take a 10 to 20 years horizon, we might begin to see science fiction movies coming to reality. Like in a movie titled Oblivion, played by Tom Cruise in which human beings use advanced technology to clone themselves and transfer recent knowledge to their clones, and sending them to different planets. Or it can be like the other movie, Ghost in the Shell, in which human beings can live forever when their physical body evolves using cybergenetics. Now, the next thing I want to talk about in today's context is the black box and white box approach. What is the relevance of understanding these approaches in learning about human capital-centric solution? Why should we care? In a white box model, you have very clear mechanics. You know what drives the outcome. It is typically econometrically modeled. The white box model has very clear data-driven processes and you can run through a series of validated hypothesis tests. You're able to interpret what drives the result. With the white box model, you can analyze and identify causality. This approach is very useful for building AI applications in the following HR subdisciplines, like managing transient workforce, running reward analytics, understanding the drivers of training effectiveness, optimizing onboarding practices, and enabling effective talent management. On the other hand, we have the black box model, which is an algorithmic approach that predicts outcome based on a bunch of data. It has an unknown data generation process, so we cannot explain the mechanics of the pattern. It's very good to obtain a high level of accuracy. This approach is more suitable for building recommendation engines like recommending a good employee benefit, detecting unexplained fraudulent behaviors, and so on and so forth. In this application, you don't really need to know what drives the behaviors or recommendations because these patterns are more often not explainable or sporadic in nature. On the same note, 
the way to classify whether a machine learning technique is white box centric or black box centric is to look at its interpretability as well as its accuracy. The classical linear regression enables us to interpret the result so it's a white box approach in which you know the drivers of different outcomes, but these regression models oftentimes are hard to achieve very accurate prediction. On the other hand, the neural networks models enable us to have very accurate results, but we do not know what drives the result, so it's a black box approach. Now let's talk about the inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. The way human beings solve a real problem in the world uses inductive reasoning and deductive reasoning. Human beings typically observe some patterns and infer generalizations about those patterns. That is inductive reasoning. Once they get an estimate of the patterns they observe, they try to test the estimates against another fact that is true. When a human takes one fact and validates it with another fact, they are using deductive reasoning. AI that uses deep learning or black box model typically approach gives a prediction that is very accurate to the actual outcome given the variance in the given data and the actual data from the natural occurring processes is very small. In other words, deep learning or black box models are good at deductive reasoning only if the future outcome runs on a data generating process that is almost exact to the past. Once the black box model gives an inaccurate answer, we have no clue on why that happened. We only know that there is a large variance between past data generating processes and future generating data processes. So why am I sharing with you this? By understanding the limitation of the black box approach and knowing that AI can have a big impact on human capital investment, we must be careful about these AI applications that cannot explain the mechanics that are deployed to affect human capital investment decision making. Now, let's wrap up this talk. We are aware that AI will change mankind. The implications are coming, so we have to be prepared. Because we have different roles in our lives, we need to acknowledge that each unique role can respond to the coming effects of AI and automation on human capital investments. In this talk, I have shared with you about the trends and hacks for the individual to be aware of. Let's recap about the tip that you have learned today. If you are taking a corporate job or trying out a gig, you need to understand that number one, learning is like investing. Number two, consider the different income hacks for routine and complex jobs. Number three, remember to take calculated risk in learning and taking on different types of jobs as singularity is coming. Once again, thank you very much for your time. This is Andrew Liu and we have come to the end of this talk.